Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kasesanov. So this week, I saw a very interesting article in New Scientist magazine. Any of you who uh, check my Facebook page will have perhaps seen it, where they were talking about, for the very first time, that the conjunction of three planets, potentially Venus, Earth, and Jupiter, may have an effect on sun cycles, which we know to be 11-year cycle. The heading of this article was, and it's not astrology, but it left me thinking that if these planets can have a direct effect on the sun, and we know that things like sunspots and all the rest of it definitely has an effect on us, maybe there's something a bit more to this astrology game than we all suspected. Curiously enough, as luck would have it, or as the universe would have it, whatever, I had already um, met my guest from today who um, knows a lot about this interesting subject. And so at the risk of jumping feet first, head into the woo, we're going to go there and talk about it because I think it's a fascinating subject. We're going to talk about astrology, but also put together with um, a therapeutic technique known as psychosynthesis. So my guest this week is Mark Jones. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it was lovely to meet you a few weeks ago, and thank you for having me on the show. And, you know, the woo-woo tag is in many ways legitimate. You know, surveying my profession, as I have chance to do now through multiple conference situations or speaking at different venues around the world, you know, there are elements clearly of the astrological scene that a sensible, intelligent, rational person might deeply question. And I would include myself within that camp. And indeed, I, I felt, if, if I could not over-egg my own accomplishments, I felt myself to be something of a trailblazer in trying to bring to the astrology community certain rigorous therapeutic standards from my years of being a psychotherapist in private practice and asking the community to think about what it might say to people, you know, not just is this a possibility from your chart? Therefore, I'm just telling it you. Is it actually useful to tell someone that? What, what are we saying? Because let's be frank, a lot of astrology is made up. A lot of adult life, I think, frankly. When you grow up, you suddenly realize everyone's kind of winging it. I mean, look at the, the UK government. It seems to be an amazing case in point. You know, the adult world is a series of as it were, creative or working fictions, isn't it, that adapt themselves and try over time to resolve themselves into something faintly meaningful or sustainable. I think that becomes uh, super apparent when you, when you have children. Yes. I remember the very first time I was left alone with my daughter, when she was only about two days old, I think, and I just didn't know what to do. And I just thought, why don't these things come with instructions? Yes. <laughs> and I realized well, that that's what life yes. is about, is you just have to wing it. <laughs> well, and those, that, that point, you know, and it's interesting, it's funny, because I just spent the last three hours with my one-year-old daughter, which is, you know, at its best, fantastic. And in one way, a beautiful preparation for this. And in another way, I had a five minute exchange time between <laughs> stopping being with her and speaking to you. And you have to almost like Wurzel Gummidge, don't you? Put a different hat on. You have to put a different head on because uh, it was nursery rhymes and singing along to the Grand Old Duke of York before this. Um, there I think where my, my, yes. my key doesn't get beyond one year old anyway. So you're exactly. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, 
And, and it's part of the magic of life, isn't it? My daughter is so magical. She's so absorbed. Everything, the curiosity is so high that she's reached for one thing and then she sees another thing along the way and then that absorbs her. And that's almost part of the evolutionary intention, isn't it? That we're yeah. completely absorbed in things. But you know that instruction manual feeling. I mean, a lot of my work in the world, and this is really where I came back to astrology. So I was an astrologer, then I trained as a therapist. Well, as you were asking me before, I was actually a literature major and a creative writing student, then an astrologer, then a therapist. But a lot of even the astrology use for me has been about how to help people where, because there's one level of like we need an instruction manual where I imagine we all go through it, you know, just the complete unknown of this tiny being who's just lit up, you know, with all this cognitive neuronal activity and all this love and all this energy. But then there are people that really profoundly fail that lack of textbook, you know, and that's really what I've, a certain percentage of my work throughout really the early 2000s until now has been with people with those dysfunctional family backgrounds. And I've really been looking into almost every technique, hypnotherapy, you know, radical therapeutic techniques, and then bring, reintroducing astrology on a certain level to help people understand why their childhoods were the way they were or why the experiences that arose in their life were the way they were in the hope that that kind of understanding held in a certain way will produce an increased potential for healing. Right. Because really that's where I felt led on a heart level. If I think about what my work is, it was an attempt. It was a pledge having come through certain things in my own development and from my own childhood to help people who had felt lost or unloved or abandoned or sidelined through their families or their early experience and, and give them a shot. If, you know, if the rapport was right between us, if the circumstances were right, you know, you can't help everyone. I, I realized that fairly soon into proceedings, but this sincere desire really to help in a way people lead themselves, lead that little girl or boy inside them out of that darkness or that place that they become trapped in, which seems to me to impact every area of life from cognitive development to, emotional security, capacity to form meaningful relationships, you know, sustain a job or a meaningful contribution to society. And so everything I've done, including all the astrology, astrology has not been approached from my point of view as a cultural artifact or as something you believe in or don't believe in or how to prove its worth to contemporary society, etc. I've approached it more like, is it a living tool? Is it transformational? Is it, is it a subtle personality guide or map? And what I found is it's way more subtle and revealing than, say, the Myers-Briggs or other personality tests. I was just well, about I, to uh, yeah. address that, actually, yes. because, I mean, you know, these days, things like the Myers-Briggs, I mean, that, that's, that's almost an essential part of getting a job, you know, they're quite often yes. run these personality tests. Maybe a slightly fluffier version of that is the yes. Enneagrams, but again, you know, there's a lot of very respectable people who ad adhere to these things, and quite frankly, they, they are in some ways, okay, they're theoretically based in psychological um, places, but you know, are they really that much more scientific than a chart? I, I'm not sure. Well, I, I, I would argue that they're way less subtle. I mean, they're useful to a point. The supreme irony with the Myers Briggs is it's based on Jung's types, right? Exactly, and, it, and Jung Arch is archetypes, um, yeah. <clears throat> but he's he's denigrated academically, academically, psychologically. Jung does not have a high standing, 
And yet in the alternative community, say the astrology community or the new age community, he really does. And I think legitimately so. I mean, I think personally he was a towering creative visionary uh, with a very, very important contribution to the 20th century. Agreed. And it's, it's fascinating, by the way, that, you know, the second half of Jung's life, he's a very serious student of astrology and he's beginning to use it with his clients. And then, as I discovered a number of years ago with a colleague, so was Roberto Saggioli, the man that founded Psychosynthesis. In fact, it's a, it's a ridiculous story, really. By accident, I found myself through my colleague in this archive in Florence. He'd, he'd written permission to ask me to be able to go because I was away teaching in America whilst he was teaching at a conference in Rome. We both get into this archive and the lady running it just points to this other room almost at the end, almost to the two of us saying, there's the library, but don't forget this other room. And in the other room, there's just these box files with spiritual astrology in English written on them. And me and my friend look at each other, like the two people in the world, if you like, that could really get what that meant. And rummaging through them over the next few days, it emerges Asagioli is even more a serious student of astrology than Jung. And he's using it with all his clients from his late 30s onwards, really. He's using it with his clients. And what emerges, therefore, is that the two most serious depth practitioners that actually studied with Freud, Jung very closely and Asagioli, a correspondence as a teenager with Freud, that develop a kind of spiritual or a deep perspective both of them used astrology and not just in a minor way i mean jung famously wrote to wolfgang pauli the nobel prize winning physicist and said i'm sorry i couldn't read your latest paper i was too busy studying astrology and synchronicity mm -hmm. uh, so you have these two towering figures in psychology in the 20th century that want to deepen psychology away from a purely materialist basis so th the two that are prepared to deal with woo woo if you want to put it like that, right. um, both use astrology as the sort of superstructure or scaffolding that enables them in part to make that journey. Not only astrology with Jung, it was alchemy as well, and it was astrology and theosophy with Asagioli. But both use these systems to help support them develop a vision of psychology because Asagioli explicitly feels that Freud has gotten too narrow, that he's only dealing with what Asagioli called the basement of the building. You know, you, you're just your basement. Mm -hmm. Asagioli wanted to see the whole house. Mm -hmm. And even his vision of the unconscious was lower, middle, and higher. So Asagioli made the important point that in the higher unconscious, you repress your beauty and power and creativity, potentially, just as much as you repress your childhood shame or anxiety or neurosis. That's one of Asagioli's really beautiful contributions, that unconscious repression can take any form and you can reject your own inner power and beauty just as much as you can just struggle with your own negative emotion that you don't want to face. You've started to, to just talk about this a little bit. Can we get a little bit yes. more into that? Because I'm of saying, course. until we met, I had never even heard the term psychosis, um, yes. which is his, um, his baby, if you like, that you now yes. on and practice and have expanded. So could you um, maybe describe what are the tenets of this therapeutic? Approach? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just to say a little bit about the man. So he's at a doctor in World War One, dealing with wounded soldiers. He's also the recipient of correspondence between Freud and Ernst Jones, which is Freud's publisher in, in London and his main translator into English. So he's very connected to Freud at that point. 
and then really through theosophy and, and being a, a friend and ally of Alice Bailey, um, as Agioli is teaching in the early Ascona conferences that become the Iranus conferences in Switzerland that become the huge basis for Jung's thought and for Joseph Campbell and other mythologists and James Hillman and Henri Corban, the Sufi scholar and all these different classicists gather eventually, but in its earlier form, it was very theosophically orientated. Asagioli was one of the main teachers in that. And all along this period, he's developing this vision of psychology, initially through reading Freud as a teenager in the original German, one of the very few people to read Freud's first book, because it's a, it's a game changer. Interpretation of Dreams was actually finished in 1899, but they deliberately put 1900 on the cover to make it seem like the modern book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it changed the world, but only about 50 people even owned it in the first few years. Anyway, Asagioli got hold of a copy. So he's super influenced by Freud, but right from the beginning, unlike Jung, Asagioli completely sees from the beginning that Freud's too limited and it's too narrow and materialist. So Asagioli has this explicit spiritual orientation, partly through personal experiences as a teenager, partly through his mother's links to the Theosophical Society. And he starts to create a vision of psychology that includes the rest of the house, if you want to put it like that. He thinks Freud's a basement expert, mm -hmm. like a structural foundation expert. And he starts to expand the rest of the house. So he's very, very interested. He studies history for teachers and artists, and he's friends with, you know, like Montessori and Rabindranath Tagore, the poet, and various figures in the world. He studies people of an artistic or um, almost just a kind of, he studies people who are terribly open in spiritual, artistic, and visionary fields. He studies their charts, studies their psychology, and he explicitly tries to imagine, as it were, a positive psychology a psychology with like the capacity to imagine a higher opening or an opening to a greater truth. So he has what he calls personal psychosynthesis, which is the way that your inner essence, your I, and he sees the ego, das ich. So Freud's term, the ego, came from just the German das ich, which means the I. Mm -hmm. and it was translated into ego. But Asagioli kind of repurifies it, if you like. He takes it away from our negative connotation of ego. And he says, you have an individual autonomous essence the I and then you have all these subpersonalities around it you know the person you are when you're with your child versus the person doing a podcast mm -hmm. interview or or approaching a bank manager all these different subpersonalities that play these different roles and that they need to cohere around that autonomous I and that's personal psychosynthesis and then he had what he called transpersonal psychosynthesis which is a vision of that I taking part in a greater relationship to what he called the self with a capital S. And we could liken that to the great mystical traditions, you know, that the individual autonomous I is connecting to a greater self with a capital S, like in Hindu philosophy or um, Judaic mysticism or the Kab Kabbalah, you know, mm -hmm. that the, the, the son of your ident individual identity is also a kind of star of the universal spirit. And you can clearly see where these metaphors start to become open to astrological language. So he's very much got this explicit spiritual background, but he holds it in, you know, he wanted psychosynthesis to exist in the world without his theosophical or astrological influences, in a way putting people off from it. 
putting sensible, rational, intelligent people off from it. And he could respect that. He was a doctor, a trained medic and a very intellectual man. He was a polymath. He could speak seven languages as a teenager, traveled to Russia on his own as a teenager to, to, to track mystical artists and, you know, just see and experience culture. So this is very clever guy and he didn't want to put people off. But the danger is in cutting it off from its own source of power, as it were, Psychosynthesis is in danger of fading out of the popular consciousness. You know, there are two, at least two, well, there's three centers in London. It's one of the biggest hotbeds of psychosynthesis in the world. There are a number of centers in Scandinavia. There's a whole different branch of it in Italy, a number of centers in South America, America, North America, Australia, and New Zealand. But you'd have to say it's not, it's not big in the popular imagination right now. You know, How closely related is it to transpersonal psychology? Well, very. It, it is. It is. You could argue. Well, it's it's the original transpersonal psychology. It's the transpersonal psychology before those terms were coined in the '60s, primarily. And someone like Stanislav Grof, who is one of the major figures behind the term transpersonal psychology, enormously respects psychosynthesis. And in fact, Asagioli, right at the end of his life in in the '60s and the very early '70s, just before he died was teaching in California uh, and was close friends with one of the people behind the Esalen Institute. And uh, psychosynthesis was a major tributary to the stream of transpersonal psychology and would be acknowledged as such. But I don't think, unfortunately, because Asagioli struggled to write and in the, in the end had to, had to be helped by students put his papers together for books, because he never had these major books out during the, the rise of psychosynthesis, it's never taken hold in the, it's never kind of been understood the importance of the role it played and of the radicalism and explicitly spiritual optimism of Asagioli's vision, um, which I find to be, I have to say, so important. I can't tell you the, the few times I've dealt with really, really hardcore trauma, early childhood abuse or very significant exposure to, you know, for want of a better word, kind of evil, evil people, in, including a case with a, with a famous serial killer. Um, it's like in those situations where a person has been truly, truly harmed when, when their innocence and their vulnerability as a young person would have just really asked for love and they've received the exact counter to that. I found that it's a kind of grace that heals. In healing work at the very bottom line level it's not a therapist or an astrologer or a healer of any kind healing the person it is just we're there holding a space and something mysterious rises in that space or something mysterious descends in that space like grace and in the few really hardcore moments when people go into that original lack of love and horror it's that that, that can hold it or turn it around that quality I think most therapists would, would totally agree with you there. I mean, if you, you know, anyone who's ever spent time with a client and, and sees that transformational process actually flowering, you, you realize that, that at best you're a conduit, but it actually doesn't really have anything to do with you at all. It's a process which just, as you said, there's a descent of grace, something magical happens. and uh, It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible to behold, isn't it? It's one of those times where no matter how difficult the, the valley of the shadow that you've, you've walked to get to that point, 
you're just invigorated as a person. I, I you're made better as a person. I mean, it, one can only speak in these kind of religious <laughs> languages, but it's a kind of baptism to be even the therapist or the therapeutic ally in that kind of space where someone is turned around from the absolute hell of personal attack on their being, say at a very vulnerable age in their life, and they're rediscovering that original pain. And then to witness that change, the quality of that change as a greater love is present. It's life-changing. And it seems to me, it seems to speak of a radical possibility spiritually in the modern era when we've lost our relationship to Christianity as a predominant religion of, you know, the West or the religions of the book. And we're in a kind of crisis, I would argue, that Nietzsche spoke about. And that in a way, Freud and Jung and Asagioli were all born out of that crisis of the death of God and its guiding light in Western civilization. And I, I would argue we haven't found anything suitably meaningful as yet. No, I, I, I mean, I, I do contest sometimes that uh, modern society and we see, you know, the rate, I mean, just, just was it last week, there was that, that terribly, terribly touching and moving report of the Dutch girl who um, was actually awarded the right to uh, practice euthanasia because she had been so desperately abused as a child and just just couldn't live with it just couldn't was was suffering so deeply um and that's that's obviously sort of like a, a flagship case if you like um but we see this so often there is such enormous numbers of people who have anxiety and depression and a whole gamut of other um whether you want to call those mental health diseases or not i think is also arguable but I mean, you know, just, just the sheer logic of, of, you know, does nature make that many broken brains? No, I don't think so. So there's got to be something going on here. Um, and well, I think if I you lose, if this, if yes. just to finish yeah. up, that point is yes. exactly what you were saying, that if, if people have kind of lost, even if it's just simple hope, you know, that yes. belief in something gives you hope, has that destabilized their their psychological framework to such a point that that it falls apart and it falls apart very young and very quickly i mean the majority of of you know suicides are in young people which is yes. very scary so tell me what well you think i think i think i think if you lose the prevailing idea of a civilization it's guiding light and i think for all its flaws, and many of them were tragic and profound, Christianity was that for a long time. It was a vision of moral beauty, let's just say that. It was a vision of truth and beauty of a higher order. We have failed to replace it with anything, and the fallout from that is enormous. I mean, most studies show in early childhood, the family can protect children, but by puberty, uh, society and peer group has the biggest impact on children, even if from a good family, they're susceptible to the social infrastructure around them. And clearly our culture's in a transition around these social infrastructure. Um, I mean, there's a series of problems as well. We've had relative peacetime for a long time. And I think unconscious material surfaces in the relative quiet, when you're not in survival mode all the time, physically, the other psychic material, can emerge and trauma memories that are not just of the current time emerge. And really that was a lot of my study in astrology, how you can use the natal chart to, as a kind of portal to look back through time to see what trauma memories people were carrying essentially when they were born, like a soul memory was one of the concepts I developed. 
the idea of soul memory being, you know, the things you were carrying in you that, that meant a lot to you as memories that would also then shape your childhood and shape your life. And I found that, by the way, you know, in a culture that doesn't value anything spiritual, in a materialistic culture or a scien a culture of scientism is the prevailing way it's going. So it's not even just pure science anymore. It's like science, as long as it's understood as materialistic, empirical-based, consciousness is an epiphenomena of the brain's neuronal activity, etc., etc., etc. I mean, clearly consciousness is more profound than that. You know, it's an unfair reductionist point of view from just my obvious personal experience. You know, my personal experience shows me. Uh, it's very hard philosophically to prove, I guess. But in a culture that doesn't recognize soul, if you like, the beauty of soul, the, the eternal longing of soul for a greater divine love and truth, then the things that the culture rejects become potentially useful. This is my thinking. Um, you know, astrology is very definitely one of the things the culture rejects. It is the joke subject. In a serious conversation, you can be quite woo-woo and push it a certain way. And then if you start bringing up astrology, at least in the old world, it would kill that conversation. But I think in a culture that rejects soul, you have to look at the trash heap that culture rejected to find certain forms of gold. And I genuinely believe that's what Jung and that's what Roberto Asagioli were trying to do by studying it. They were trying to create a living tool for personal transformation. They weren't interested in monthly horoscopes at the back of magazines. It wasn't the same kind of thinking. And but yes, I think that, I mean, yes. Will yeah. or not, I mean, long short, is a scientific no. Um, is it useful? Clearly. Um, is it interesting? Most definitely, because I know complete and utter skeptics who I've, I've caught, you know, looking in the Sunday yes. Times or wherever it yes. is. You know, I mean, everybody reads it. They just discard the bits they don't like. But, you know, I mean, it, it, has, it has some kind of a weird magnetism about it, even if people, well, I don't believe in all that rubbish. But Well, and your article, you point out the fact that they have to say, and it's not astrology, yes. shows a rising populism of astrology that they even have to say that. I would argue, I mean, it's a point, um, Lionel Corbett, who teaches at Pacifica, Institute in California, uh, a man from my hometown, Manchester, who I met for a, a meal out in California, wrote a book called The Religious Function of the Psyche, based on Jung's vision that the psyche has an inherent religious or spiritual impulse. And I think if you deny that culturally, then it escapes into shadow. And so you have, you know, heavy drug use, whether prescription or street drugs, you had illegal rave scenes, you know, you have these underground movements where people want to feel connected or tribally connected so that they can transcend themselves on some level. The trouble is if those movements aren't connected to a greater light, if you want to put it like that, then they may not feed people deeply enough to sustain them. Because I would argue there's an aspect of one's true nature that can't bear to live without truth or can't bear to live without a relationship to the greater world in a meaningful way. And by that, I don't just mean a feeling like I'm an individual isolated unit, part of this world. I mean, no, something core in my heart is actually made out of the same stuff of the stars and other people and animals and the beauty of nature. And that I'm a part of it, a living part of it. And my relationship to it on a heart and mind level actually matters in this world. Because I think that's the other thing that the young people are struggling with. 
they don't feel that their lives matter. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And that's a killer. That kills your sense of purpose and, and your sustaining sense of value. Totally agree with that statement. Totally agree. As, as very interesting point you raised, though. I mean, um, I recently read a fabulous book. I have to highly recommend it to anybody. Stealing Fire by James yes. and Stephen Kotler, where you know they they look obviously they're looking from a from a semi scientific perspective, um, but they sort of compare uh, experiences that one gets in meditation or ecstatic dancing or psychedelics or the uh, exercise flow states or artistic flow states and they say well actually if you look at them they're all the same thing and isn't it interesting at how many trillion dollars a year are being given out so that people can get out of their heads i mean yes. clearly it's a it's a it's a human condition to want to get beyond what we see now now whether that's a search and for a communication with god or not is, is open to question, but it certainly is a need that a lot of us seem to have to see reality a little differently, perhaps. Well, yeah, and certainly to feel a part of something greater than the human self. I would argue mm -hmm. that it's impossible to be truly happy uh, with a hedonistic attitude or a solipsistic attitude. You, you have to feel that your life contributes to something greater than just you if you want to be really happy in this world, I would argue. Because there's a, there's a level of happiness that's to do with purpose and, and the sense of giving. Mm -hmm. And I think in, a, in an era where the inner heart of things has been ripped out of the culture to a certain extent, people, they don't look at giving, do they? It's like people think about what can I have? What can I take? What do I need? Why aren't I getting it? Whereas really the truly centered person thinks, how can I contribute? What can I give? How can I give of myself to this world that's so beautiful, that's, that's made of what inspired my heart? And that's, that's like a healthy psychic relationship to the world where you feel you're actually connected through a bond of love to things, to, to the truth and beauty of life. I would, I would argue this is increasingly rare and that's very sad. You know, that would, we are not in a golden age psychically or spiritually i would argue you know it's like that kali yuga teaching or something you know we're not in a period where it's easy to find the the light of truth but that doesn't make it any less important and it means really that perhaps a person has to explore more unusual pathways to find truth you know there isn't just one cultural narrative that can sustain you right now at this point in life or one sense of overarching meaning i think and Jung's the great example of this for me Mm -hmm. You have to find your own path. And he truly did. And in a way, his path was not meant to set up a Jungian school. So a bunch of other people can become Jungian style therapists. You know, he just lived his life to be Carl Jung at that level of individuation. And, um, you know, I think one of the great points of that was he said, withdraw your projections from the world. Stop painting the world with your own unresolved feelings because you can't even see it clearly. Withdraw those projections and become your own person more truly. And it's a very challenging path. And where astrology is so useful is that it's an almost unique map, you know. It's so much more subtle than that Myers-Briggs we were talking about because it's got all these, I don't know, like it's like a 12 note octave, but on different levels all at the same time. 
two things there. So um, one thing I, I always treasure about Jung is his um, treatment of the shadow world, which I think yes. is something that a lot we see today has kind of disappeared. It's like on the one hand, everybody would admit that trauma is a thing, but nobody actually kind of openly ever had it um, because we just don't like to deal with it. We don't like to deal with what's painful and, and uncomfortable the parts of ourselves which cause us shame and and discomfort it's it's sort of easier to kind of cat you know to lose away and until at some point the bubble bursts and then you need help um would you like to talk about that in your work does um does Sajoli's work also delve into into that aspect of <laughs> yes although he because i i think young i think you're absolutely right i think the profundity of young's vision is not even fully appreciated by the therapeutic world. I mean, Jung's father was a pastor. He was a priest. And really, Jung is following like a Christ descent path, isn't he? He's saying like, at the deepest, I will go into the underworld and I will own what's in that underworld. I will go into hell and I will walk out the other side. Mm -hmm. It's the valley of the shadow again. Mm -hmm. I will fear no evil. And Jung is on a spiritual mission in that regard, to own everything unresolved in himself. I mean, I bow to him, I really do. And I think, I agree with you, the therapeutic community struggles to deal with things on that level. Azagioli had this hugely pragmatic point, which I like. <clears throat> you see, most people aren't as strong as you. And Azagioli's great point was, get some of the upper stuff in place first, so that you have a steady light before you go down there. Because even someone as strong as Carl Jung was nearly broken apart by his relationship with Freud mm -hmm. and the way it fell out. Most people aren't as strong as Carl Jung, frankly. And so we need that support. Whether it's a therapeutic ally, I mean, that's really what I feel I am for people at certain yeah. points, a certain amount of my work. I am there as almost a spiritual friend or ally or guide for the time in their life when they've decided to do that descent and they didn't want to do it entirely alone. And it would have felt a lot harder and a lot more problematic to do it entirely alone. Mm -hmm. And then another part of my work, I feel to be helping people because I've done some of the descent, because I've descended with so many other people, I then spend some of the rest of my time doing consultations to people to show them the world after that process. <coughs> How can I put it? If you've integrated depth psychology on a certain level, when you do an astrology reading, for example, and you look at the family patterns in a chart, I can summarize years of therapy and all the different other people I work with into that one reading for that one person. And I can help them see what their family patterns might have done or how they might get beyond it. And that's so exciting to me because it speeds up the therapy process. And who can afford that? Who can afford the years and years, you know, that it takes? Absolutely. I see the validity of that enormously, but of course that does also beg the question about the predictive quality because I think a lot of people 
who uh, read their horoscopes or or dabble perhaps with astrology see it more as a essentially for almost a divination tool rather, rather than, yes you know so so how does that come into your well that's a very good point i mean a very famous traditional astrologer called chris brennan argues you can't look at astrology without calling it a divination tool and of course he's technically right because as soon as you're saying the moment you were born has a symbolic relationship to the meaning of the rest of your life that's a ritualized setting isn't it that's a divination tool mm -hmm. Having said that, <clears throat> I'm a very unusual astrologer in that sense. I mean, my readings don't have predictions in them other than maybe the prediction that might emerge like, <clears throat> excuse me, let's say someone says, the last relationship I had turned out he was secretly seeing someone else. The one before it turned out he lived in another country. I never saw him. The one before that, you know, he was unavailable because he was a marijuana addict. And he was just smoking pot all day long. And it's like this person's come to this point in their life where they've seen the pattern, or at least the edges of it. They're starting to see that everyone presented well, but is unavailable. And you know somewhere there'll be some childhood pattern, how the parents seemed amazing or the father seemed amazing, but actually he was working all the time and they never got to see the magic of his office or maybe he was a football manager or a radio host. And it seemed like he had the most amazing, exciting job, but actually he never took the child there. He, they never felt a part of it. They never felt the love. I will say things like, if we identify that and they agree, so it's all participatory with me, I just say, how can I help today? You come for reading, I just start, how can I help? If we get to that point in the participation where they agree with the insight, then I will say things like, crikey, if... If something doesn't change, you're just as likely to meet someone else who's unavailable in some way, aren't you? Mm -hmm. So I'll be predictive in the sense like, if we've looked deeply into your psychic patterning and we, and we see that, and we, and we take the default position that people don't change unless they really change. But I'm not predictive like based on the chart. I'm not predictive like, I don't know, your Mars is in Cancer Square Saturn, therefore this means this, in a categorical way. I use it suggestively as a map, but I'm not categorical about it because I think it's a philosophical category error. I think it's like assigning ontological value to the chart, you know, the value of being, mm -hmm. which it doesn't have. It's only a symbolic value. The chart's like a story or a poem. It's not a living being that can be born and die in that sense. So for me, you have to be very careful. You have to be like a high artist. You have to interpret that story or that poem in the most subtle and nuanced way, including a living dialogue with the person. So when I do a reading, it's like, I'm, like we're talking on Zoom now and I can see you. And then to the other side of you on my computer screen, I would have your chart. But I would spend most of the reading looking at you and talking to you and only glancing at your chart to see how the patterns might give us an extra level of information. But then I'm unusual because most astrologers have not been a therapist also. So I was used to working with people without the chart. So I know you can go a long way without a chart. So I'm only interested then in what is the extra subtle dimension that it adds. I'm not doing it like a normal astrologer who's only ever used the chart, if you like. So I'm not relying on the chart. Some, some astrologers genuinely believe the chart shows a greater reality than the person. 
almost like the person should stop talking and they should speak their chart to them. But I personally think this is disastrous. I think it's an awful way to practice. It certainly uh, takes away the free will aspect, doesn't it? But that's a whole other conversation. By well, <laughs> exactly. But and, and it well, and it disempowers the person's autonomy. You can say, <clears throat> even if you even if you don't want to argue for free will on a larger scale, although I probably would, you can at least say that a person's autonomy on a psychological scale, emotional scale, is really crucially important, isn't it? Without it, you're riding roughshod over people. And astrologers ride roughshod over people all the time. And they say the most absurd things to them all the time, based on what they perceive to be this internal series of logical steps analyzing the chart, but they never check it against the person because you see the 7.7 billion people on the planet. There's only 12 signs and 12 variations. There's only a certain number of mathematical combinations the chart can ever have. And it will apply in different ways based on the consciousness of the individual too. That's the fundamental hidden factor. And the great, late, great Dane Rudyard, who really imagined modern astrology, he always argued this. You have to add the, the hidden factor, the consciousness of the individual, which transforms the understanding of the chart. Yeah. Actually, the, the thing that jumped into my head when you, we were talking about that was that this idea of seeing the chart as kind of like fixed determinant pattern. Yes. Almost more important than the individual. It's actually not dissimilar to the kind of view of science with genes yes. and genetics and DNA. Exactly. exactly. The same thing. And of course, now we are very much beginning to understand that you are not your genes and that there's a whole load of, you know, it, it's... When I was talking to Igor Kufayev last week, and yes. he, was, he was so beautifully elucidating these ideas of karma, and you know, one stream of karma is that which you cannot do anything about that you're born with, and it's like you know, but yeah, there's a, there's two others, <laughs> and one whole big one that you can have a whole lot to do with, and and kind of emphasis on a on a solid chart or a solid genome or whatever really limits possibility, and actually. It's certainly in terms of DNA, it just doesn't express the truth anymore. We now know that that's not the case. So it's a brilliant it. point. It's a brilliant point. Well, it's like epigenetic phenomena exactly. have been shown to be the exactly. keys that trigger genes. Exactly. The, chart, the chart is like the genetic structure, but it, it fails to take into account the epigenetic phenomena of early childhood. It fails to take into account the fundamental consciousness of the individual. Because really... The fallacy that some astrologers have is that they're reading your chart as if you had just been born. Right. They don't realize you're 30 something, 40 something, whatever. My assessment is, and Rudyard pointed me this way, how have you lived the chart already? And therefore, what can we learn from that? What can we learn from how these symbols have expressed themselves through you? Rather than making the assumption that I think somewhat vain and arrogant, that I can just read those symbols cold, and not apply them to the unique individual that you are, if I was looking at your chart. Right. Uh, well, and then just to say about Igor, I mean, we both met, you know, at a weekend mm -hmm. uh, workshop or retreat of Igor's in London. I mean, what a brilliant, profound and, and beautiful teacher. Mm -hmm. And these complex views on karma are most interesting, I think. And every, every progressive spiritual path realizes there's a lot about karma that can be undone. Otherwise, what is the spiritual path? Exactly. It's what what are you growing in? What are you evolving in if you can't do that? Yeah. Right. Right. 
Wow, I can see our time is just running away. It's always the same, just as the conversation gets interesting. One one topic I also wanted to discuss with you, we talked a little bit about that when we met, was um, the placebo effect. Yes. And I know that you have some very interesting perspectives on that, perhaps you would like to share with Well, I do, yes. Um, I think it's a reductionist statement in akin to the scientism we were talking about and the science issues we were talking about before we even went on air. I think it's an unfortunate name that, that implies the frustration of science with double bind and triple bind drug trials. You know, it's a reductionist name. It's named an annoyance almost. Oh, the placebo effect. Whereas what it's referring to is the natural healing power of the human psyche, the enormous like resource within. And to name it as such is robbing people of the power of that resource. The placebo effect is being given a, an anti-placebo effect by its own name. We could amplify the placebo effect if we actually rebranded it somehow. And I've often thought about some kind of like alternative marketing campaign. How could, you know, what would be the best name to rebrand it? Because if it could be called something like the healing power of the self or whatever, it would actually encourage more of that positive response in people's psyches. It's the term itself is limiting its efficacy. Whereas the placebo effect is one of the great powers in human healing that's not being used in an era when we spend so much on drugs, pharmaceutical drugs and after patient care and, uh, you know, cost of a hospital bed, this factor that makes up something like 35%, maybe higher in some tests of human recovery, you know, a significant factor above a third, the placebo effect can account in drug trials for, antidepressants for example is almost the same as taking a it actually exceeds it in some yeah cases. in some cases yeah. exactly yeah. so the placebo effect is enormously powerful and it seems foolish in an era of a cash-strapped nhs and, and struggles to meet the needs uh, the ailments of people on a mass level to be reducing it in that way a healthy rebrand and an embracing of it as the positive that I believe it to be you know your inner psyche has a certain capacity to self-generate and repair and positive psychology and certain states of consciousness uh, give it the increased chance of doing that. And we could support that as practitioners. And the name of it becomes super important, calling it something that's more accurate, more truthful. Completely agree with you. And actually even the awareness of it, because I mean, in as much as perhaps modern doctors don't encourage the, the positive aspects of the placebo, they very much engage in nocebo. Effect, yes. You know, yes. You know, Dampen. Yes. Exactly, and says you've got three months. I mean, you know, there are incidences of people who've been told that drop dead were opened up. There was nothing wrong with them. You know, I mean, just that information. Well, it's like those old yes. voodoo priests, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. You know, it's like the power of the witch doctor on your consciousness. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe as a last question, Mark, I'm oh, devastated. Time's really just slipped away. It's a fascinating conversation I'd love to have for hours more. Um, but if a client is, is looking um, and, and a classical psychotherapeutic approach is not so appealing to them, could yes. you maybe in a nutshell just um, summarize for whom you can be of help and how you do that? Well, one person put it as they exclaimed with delight once, oh, you're a psychotherapist with a roadmap. <laughs> so um, so it's, like, it's like, yeah, a form of therapy that 
that actually has this direction to it through the chart and quickens certain processes. So we get to the essence of the person much quicker than these months and months of careful dialogue and history taking. So it's like a deepening, it's like a quickening of the therapeutic process. I also have specialized in people that have had things where they've worked in therapy for a very long time and it's still not resolved. And then we realize it's lying on the soul memory level or what you could call the karmic level. Um, I call it soul memory because I try to speak in Western terms because I think most Westerners have a misunderstanding of karma because they project the idea of sin onto it. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's a very different concept in the East, karma from sin. But we've grown up in a Western tradition primarily. So I use the phrase soul memory. And sometimes things are in the soul memory. And that, I, I re- that was revealed to me when a client of mine with very severe early childhood issues began a spontaneous series of past life regressions in the therapy space. And then the combination of that and studying her chart and the charts of numbers of people I work with and then began to do regression work with for a period of time. I don't really do it anymore. Began to teach me how these memories in the soul shape early patterns. So sometimes when people have been through a long period of certain forms of more conventional therapy and they haven't got the result they're looking for, they sometimes reach out to me because the, the, the natal chart as a soul map can point to some of the inner issues they were born with that it can be harder to get to sometimes through therapeutic means uh, if they're not understood it's not blaming any therapists or practitioners is that what you mean when you when you talk about um evolutionary astrology also yes that's 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 linked to this idea yes that the soul is journeying and it's carrying these memories from that journey however you want to frame that you could frame that as literal past lives but i'm not saying that Mm -hmm. i'm just speaking transformationally like in the space with clients what's come up but what i have seen time and time again is that when a powerful soul memory comes up and is released it can have a profound profound effect on the current situation in a way that was not understood before yes and that's really the essence of evolutionary astrology this way of looking at the chart to see what the soul's intention was not just as it were the personality now right are there any conditions where you would say hands off? That's, that's, not, that's not somewhere I can be active. Oh, yes, so many. And yeah, of course. I mean, I'm interested in deep therapeutic work. Lots of people want an astrologer to tell them when is a good time to buy a car or sell their house. I don't really do that kind of thing. I just recommend them to other people. Right. I'm, I'm interested in who they are on a being level and who they are evolving into being. So that's my remit of my work. But obviously, even in that context, there might be some things, a person's distance, or they they may have practical concerns. They might not be able to afford to do the long-term work that would be required. But I've become quite good at describing to people other options they might have, other therapies they could see, and what might work for their budget and on their timescale. So I've tried to become a skillful translator of multiple different modalities to help people respond. But there's not any pathological conditions where you would say no schizophrenia or something like that. Oh, yes. I mean, yes, I think, well, I think situations of that degree of seriousness require a team. They require mental health care team, medication, psychiatry. I've certainly worked with people with that, but only as part of a team. Mm -hmm. And it's not my predominant focus now. No, it's more transformational mentoring with people who are quite dynamically ready to take a step. Which I think is vitally important because perhaps that's actually the first step in preventing some of these much more serious issues arising 
further down the road if they haven't arisen already. Well, and it also creates what you want to create amongst those who are sufficiently empowered themselves is opportunities for them. So then they're not weighing on the system because, you know, some people aren't going to make it or some people will be broken by things that happen to them. But it really helps the culture's ability to respond to those people if the ones that were ready to take a step and become more dynamic and more healthy and more whole were actually supported in that too. Right. So that there can be a greater holding for everyone in the long run. Absolutely. Fascinating conversation, Mark. Um, thank you so much for giving me, as well as my listeners, um, insight into, into this fascinating world of, of psychosynthesis, which I was not so aware of transpersonal psychology, yes, but now I understand it better. And then the mixture of that, um, which as you say, was actually maybe its original foundations back with the astrology, I think is fascinating. And, you know, I, I'm a great believer in who, whoever heals, is right so <laughs> whatever helps so um and some of it that's a really nice yeah it's acid a, test it's isn't it question yeah. actually um so whoever heals is correct um <laughs> and because uh, i think that's what we're all in the business of isn't it is actually just trying to help people find their way well because the level of suffering in the world and the level of confusion in people in their identity right now seems epidemic Absolutely. And yeah, the more it's, it's a joy, isn't it though? It's a pleasure and a privilege to take part in the human being experiment <laughs> <laughs> and our attempts to live here and be real. I love it. And well, thank you for having me on the show and well, good luck with everything you're doing. And I yeah. very much honor you for your work, but before you run off, I yes. have three little questions that I always yes. ask all of my guests and I'd like to hear your versions of the answers. So we talk about here on London Heal is mind, body, spirit, medicine. And I like to capture that in the words health, happiness and serenity. So for you personally, how would you define health? What does that word mean for you? Surrendered participation in life or surrendered participation in the everything. That's what makes me feel healthy or joyful. That's what rejuvenates me. I would, I would argue health as an inner component. You know, it's your life force and it's connection to the greater life. That's what makes me feel healthy when I feel truly heart connected to the greater life. Beautiful. And what about happiness? You know, we talk a lot about happiness and I think a lot of people sometimes confuse happiness with pleasure and they're not the same thing. Um, the world is very much in the pursuit of pleasure. Um, happiness appears to be something a little more ephemeral. How do you find happiness? Well, I think it's inherently linked to purpose. I think the, great, the greater happiness that's beyond mere pleasure arises out of purpose and the sense of fulfillment or dedication to that purpose. So my dedication to my life's work or my sense of purpose, that's my main source of that. Outside of my personal intimate connections, my love for my wife, my child, and my close friends. You know, I'm a simple man when it comes to my personal happiness. I just like a simple, grounded, personal life with lots of time with the people I love. I secretly suspect that some of us make it all much more complicated than it has to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Simple's a good thing, yeah. <laughs> a good meal, good company, a nice conversation, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And lastly, serenity. We've, we've talked about the crazy, crazy world that, that we live in. Um, 
are there any practices that you specifically have where you actively say, okay, downtime, I'm turning off the noise, I'm going within? Yes, and I've had various different ones at different times in my life. When my client work first started taking off and I, and I was seeing an awful lot of people each week, I used to just lie in a dark room and listen to Bach. You know, it's just amazing how restorative the beauty of music is. But I would say the deepest path of serenity for me, again, it just comes down to, has my heart surrendered to love? Have I surrendered to giving my heart to life? If I have, and there's some serenity <laughs> possible to me. If I haven't, and you know that can happen, things can agitate one, or one's personal wishes even for loved ones. The, the attachment through having a, a little girl, you know, a young daughter, it's incredible love that it brings in, but it also it made me more attached to life. You know, I don't worry about charts. I don't worry about astrology, as I was sharing with you. I've taught it around the world, that lack of worry. But having this beautiful little being that I was so in love with, I was obsessing about her chart for a few days. You know, <laughs> I had to put things down again. You have to put the attachment down again because the greater love, as I become older and more happier and more loving, you know, I just like life even more. And then you want to stay in it, don't you? You want to live forever and enjoy it. But you've got to be prepared to, to live here as lovingly as possible and yet be prepared to put it down when, when asked. You've got to be prepared to, to give it up too. It's a very strange thing to be a human, isn't it? On a, it is. You know, and my soul feels most comfortable when I'm most loving, but also most prepared to give myself up. That's extraordinarily deep and profound and uh, I think a lot of people may have to go and ponder on that as I will myself I, I agree with you though very much so Mark thank you it was an honour and a pleasure thank you so much so dear listeners I hope you enjoyed that episode Mark as much as I did so astrology is a very well obviously a very interesting subject and a super useful tool and I think what Mark said was was really very profound the fact that in a in a time where we have become very dogmatic perhaps in our thinking it's actually worth going to look in the trash heap of stuff that we throw away for some of the solutions and perhaps astrology is one of those it seems to be an extremely effective tool in Mark's hands together with his uh, his psychology approach as well so if you'd like to know more about Mark then we will put the links to his website down in the show notes and speaking of show notes if you would like to have extended show notes for future episodes of London Heal then just pop over to our website londonheal.com become a London Heal insider and those show notes together with links for the newest episodes will appear promptly in your mailbox as those episodes are released and also, I would implore you, please, to rate and review us on iTunes, soon to be up Apple Podcasts, um, because it makes a huge difference to us being found by new listeners. And the reason why uh, London Heal exists is to provide information and education for those who can benefit from it. So the more, the merrier. So please support us by rating, reviewing, and subscribing over on iTunes. Well, my dear listeners, that just leaves me to wish you, as always, health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs>